Recovery Elevator, episode 356. People always ask me, what was the change? You, you did this for so long. The change was, I just shut up and listened. I was just, I was done with my ideas. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Ashley. She's 35 years old. She's from Orange County and took her last drink on January 7th, 2006. Nice job, Ashley. All right, let's talk Restore. This is our intensive 14-session course in January that meets Sunday, Monday, and Thursday with the first course session starting Saturday, January 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Guys, this course is all about accountability and connection. Register at recoveryelevator.com forward slash restore. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And now let's hear from Cafe RE. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe RE almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there. Hey, real quick with Cafe RE, this is a sliding scale. If $24 a month is too much for you, email us at info at recoveryelevator.com and let us know. We can go all the way down to $1 per month. Please do not let the price get in the way of your decision to quit drinking. We work with everyone on that. Okay, let's get started. I want to start this episode by doing a quick check-in. How are we doing? How's everybody's day going? When you hit play on this podcast, what was the feeling or emotion behind it? Was it a fuck, I don't want to listen, but I'm sick and tired of being roundhoused by alcohol? Yeah, roundhouse. What's that Patrick Swayze film in the 80s where he takes over a disheveled nightclub as the head of security? Ah, fudge, we'll never know. Or when you hit play on your podcast player, were there feelings of optimism? Maybe you're gaining control back of your life. And either way is just fine. Either emotion you're feeling when hitting play is just fine. So the important thing is that you're listening. You're trying. You're making an effort and doing the work. If this podcast doesn't resonate or track with you, keep searching. There are hundreds of recovery or quit drinking podcasts, and they all have something to offer. 
If AA, or maybe even if CAFE RE isn't working for you, keep going. There are more recovery modalities and programs today than ever. All right, and if you're new to the Recovery Elevator podcast or are just joining us, for all the episodes in November and December, we're giving you three line items to help you stay AF through the holidays. Because let's face it, quitting drinking is a challenge, and then you add Christmas Eve, Christmas, Uncle Ronnie, and then New Year's into the mix, my goodness. In fact, do you all remember the movie Willow with Val Kilmer and Warwick Davis? There's a scene where Willow Offgood finds himself confronting a two-headed dragon, quite the foe. He's clearly outmatched, but he doesn't run. And then Val Kilmer comes to rescue Willow and defeats the dragon. So listeners, I would also give myself a C- with this analogy, but I've been waiting 356 consecutive weeks to include the movie Willow into the Recovery Elevator podcast, so we just gotta roll with it. But Willow doesn't run. That's the point I'm trying to make. He faces the storm and then help out of nowhere arrives. So you've made a decision to go into the holidays sober, alcohol-free, unsedated, open, raw, and vulnerable. You voluntarily choosing to do this puts you in the category of badass. There's no doubt about that. So as you confront the holiday sober, wondering how the hell you're going to do this, help will arrive at the appropriate time to slay the dragon. I think my C- went to at least a B-, B+. So these tips must be put into practice and practiced. It's not going to help you to just listen. So give them a shot. Try one of them. Try all of them. And if there's something you don't want to try, it's too far outside of your comfort zone, well, maybe that's the one you need to try. Okay, let's recap last week's suggestions. Number one, rest. Netflix and Audible were built for this. After all, this time of year, especially for those who live in colder climates or experience seasons, is a time for rest and rejuvenation. Number two, the Uno reverse card. Remember that people's issues with you usually don't have much to do with you. Number three, remind yourself that you're physically safe. Most likely, there is some sort of tension in the body or undercurrent from childhood that is saying we aren't physically safe. For further explanation on these three suggestions, please go back and listen to last week's episode. Okay, and here's the game plan for this week. Number one, Play the tape forward. In my humble opinion, this is perhaps the only time we can think ourselves out of a drinking problem. Playing the tape forward means this. When the idea or poll to take a drink emerges, ask yourself, what do you think will actually happen? Most likely, you've got a deep vault of experiences in the past showing it's not going to be just one, like the mind is telling you. And how did you feel the last time you drank? Did you stop at just one or two? Did you wake up refreshed the next day? Did alcohol add to your life in that moment in the next day? Play the tape forward. It will give you an accurate idea of what will happen if you take that one drink. This is an excellent strategy that can be implemented at any time. Number two, treat yourself to a gift. Now you might be saying to yourself, Paul, aren't the holidays a time to give to others? Well, you got me there. Oh, but wait. On this journey, we've uncovered the inner child. So with this thinking, you're gifting this to the inner kiddo. This could be a massage, professional bass fishing equipment, whatever. That really doesn't matter. Another way to do this is to buy the inner kiddo a Christmas gift, wrap it, and put it under the tree for Christmas morning. It took my family about 10 Christmases to figure out my dad was doing this. 
He'd open up a gift and say, wow, a pair of ski socks. And since I didn't give my dad ski socks, I didn't think much of it. But it turns out that nobody else gave my dad ski socks either. So this would also be a fun joke to play on your family. Imagine doing this with a new wakeboard or maybe even a new boat. Number three. Okay, I need 33 seconds of your time with this next one. Take three deep breaths into the lower lobes of the lungs. Each in and out breath should be around 11 seconds. 5.5 in, 5.5 out. So why the lower part of the lungs? This is where the nerve endings for the parasympathetic nervous system are located. And when activated, it sends a message to the brain saying we can relax, we can rest, we can digest food and heal. I've been doing this for about six months or ever since I read the book Breath by James Nestor and I'm happy to report my nervous system has never been this calm. Listeners, this is major progress for me. Coming out of that low-level hum of constant fight-or-flight emotions has been a game-changer for me. Again, early next year, I want to work on the nervous system with y'all, but I want to read a couple more books and learn more on the subject first. Okay, now let's get into our mini pep talk for the episode, and I'm loving making the music and doing this. I hope you guys are enjoying it also. And if you'd like to get just this part of the episode for free, that would be the talk over the music. Go to recoveryelevator.com meditations. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. There's no set number of drinks one needs to consume or length of time drinking. It's, uh, it's different for everyone. Plus, the drinking problem doesn't develop overnight. And why did they happen in the first place? There are many reasons for this, many we will never know, but I can tell you the drinking served a purpose. It gave you peace, a calm like never before, especially at the start. However, what was happening was the alcohol was suppressing an inner turmoil of sorts, similar to an x-ray, which can illuminate or reveal a broken bone Alcohol shines a light on inner imbalances by making them go away. It's almost the opposite. This is not forever, of course, but it does quite the trick. I'll be the first to admit that. But what's happening as we continue to suppress these voices, these feelings, is they begin to grow louder. And once enough internal lines are crossed, emotions such as anxiety or depression emerge, and sometimes this is for the first time. As this continues, some emotional fronts get quite loud. Anxiety in particular is one that comes to mind. So we drink more to make this feeling go away. But what if this emotion is trying to tell us something, like an inner guardrail? Is it possible the very emotions we are hoping to sidestep with alcohol are there to help us? What if those uncomfortable and often treacherous feelings are our allies? Well, if we continue to override these internal guidance systems, then we live life truly blind. Nothing of significance will ever take place. You won't find yourself in the right place at the right time, at least for something good. The miraculous, a miracle, which are normal occurrences in life, will never take place. You'll miss every lucky break or opportunity that comes your way, making the already challenging task of being a human being even more difficult. So when we remove alcohol, when does the miraculous occur? 
day one, day 500? Who knows? Because that's up to you to find out. And before we hear from Odette and Ashley, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature was founded by a father and son in addiction recovery. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, and we are so grateful to have them as our sponsor. Beat your cravings with their Serenity Blend. If you are interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Paul, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Ashley to the show today. Ashley, welcome. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, listeners, we are both busy moms and Mm -hmm. we had multiple rescheduling attempts and we're finally here. So this already feels we made it. It already feels like a win. Ashley, let us know when the last time you had a drink was. That's usually our opening question. So, uh, my sobriety date is January 7th of 2006. So not sure when this episode will air, but in January, 2022, I will be 16 years clean and sober. Wow. Ashley, how do you feel? (laughs) Well, I'm a busy mom, so I feel tired all the time. Um, that's kind of my baseline, but as it relates to being a person in recovery, I feel just a tremendous amount of gratitude. I got sober when I was 19 years old. And I always say to people, you know, people like, Oh, you're so lucky. You, you know, you skipped all this stuff. Like you, you don't understand. It has to get so, so bad for a 19 year old to say, I don't want to drink or use drugs ever again. (laughs) So, yeah, but it is, it's been everything I have and do is, is related to that is related to my ability to stay sober and my gratitude for that. 100%, you know, and we do have a lot of young listeners and I love that they'll get to hear your story because it is challenging. And like you said, you have to hit Mm -hmm. rock bottom pretty hard if that's at the point in your life where you have to make a change. So before we get into your story, Ashley, just give listeners a little background on yourself. Let us know where you're calling in from, where you're from. Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? Which I know that I already know a little bit about that. And what do you like to do for fun? So um, I am living in Southern California in Orange County, South Orange County. And I am married to a person, a man in recovery. We have twin boys that will be five in January. I co-founded a Silicon Valley startup company in 2010. That was the first company to offer online uh, addiction treatment, outpatient substance use disorder treatment, which today in, in post pandemic world is, you know, a no brainer. But in 2010, when we started, uh, everybody told us no, 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 no for years. And, um, so that was quite a journey, you know, alongside my recovery. I'm currently the chief people officer there. So I head up all things people. And then I have a podcast called the courage to change a recovery podcast, where I interview people who have different types, all all types of recovery stories, recovering, and just literally the courage to change from where they were to what they are, whatever that is today. 
so inspiring because 2006, you were 19 years old, which means that in 2010, you were still very young when you started doing this work, not just for yourself, but for other people. So, so cool. So cool. I, what a great way to leave a legacy for your kids. You know, it's like, you're helping a lot of other people, but I always think of just the direct consequences to our action, our, our kids. It's almost like my husband and I were talking about legacies and how it's usually, we, we want to think that we'll be remembered forever, but it's truly mm-hmm. like our kids, our grandkids, and then we start getting pretty diluted. Mm-hmm. So it makes this work as a parent and someone who's in recovery as a parent. So important. I think, you know, that's want to change the world to change it at home. You know, I've heard this quote and paraphrasing, but yeah. how cool that your family gets to witness you do this work. And what do you like to do when you're not doing recovery work? What are some of your hobbies? Well, to be honest, I'm finishing my MBA at uh, Johns Hopkins. And so I haven't had any time to do anything other than work kids and school, but that is finishing in December. And I, um, I love yoga. I love to be outside. I love to go to the beach. I love to read and, um, I love comedy, going to comedy shows and listening to comedy. And, you know, right now I'm kind of in this place where I'm trying to discover what fun is in this stage of life. Cause it looks very different. And in my head, fun is still linked to kind of the, like going out to the club or, you know, like the, the very up things. And I'm actually doing work and writing on, okay, what feels fun at this stage in my life, because that, that is transitioning. So it's an interesting process to, you know, it's a, I, I try to actively grow instead of accidentally find myself places. Yeah, you're right. Fun looks very different, not mm-hmm. just when you're a mom, but also when you're in recovery, when mm-hmm. you're in the pandemic still in many ways. So it's, it's just a journey that, that is changing all the time. And I'm happy to hear that you're going to be getting some free time back because I know how it is not enough hours in the day. And Ashley, let us know now then a little bit about your background with drinking. I know that you could probably spend the whole hour talking to us about your story since you did get sober at 19th. But if you could just kind of summarize what got you to your bottom and you know, what was your relationship with alcohol and what got you to start on this journey and be here with us? Sure. So my family is from the East coast and, um, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts when I was a young girl and I experienced sexual abuse as a young child. And, and then we moved to Silicon Valley when I was six. And when we got there, so six, six, almost seven. And, uh, my first drink was a beer that I stole from my parents' fridge when I was seven. And uh, I drank it in my closet, which turned out to be a place that I liked to drink later on. And it took me a week to finish it. And I didn't really know what I was doing. It was sort of like, I know I'm not supposed to do this. So I, I like, you know, very kind of rebellion almost not, not necessarily about the alcohol, but eventually it became about the alcohol. And, you know, I always say like, I believe I was born with a very strong genetic predisposition and then things happened along the way, you know, the abuse, it didn't help. I'm not sure that it made me an alcoholic, but it sure didn't help. But there were things along the way that continued to happen And again, that genetic predisposition and me not knowing how to 
be in my own skin. I just never felt, you know, I felt like I was born with my skin too tight. I didn't know how to be me. And I always felt like I was too much for people, right? I was like, it's just, I don't even know how to describe it other than too much. It was just, you're too much. You ask too many questions. You, you know, you're too loud. You're too big and, and, and all of that. And so I tried to make myself what other people wanted me to be. And I'm not very good at, at inauthenticity, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So I didn't do a very good job. So the way that I like to talk about my relationship with alcohol is I found alcohol and drugs and alcohol was always there. Even when the, the hard drugs came in, it was the thing that, you know, from, from, from the get go. And I hired alcohol to do a job for me. Alcohol made me feel comfortable in my skin. Alcohol worked. Alcohol saved me. Alcohol and drugs made me feel okay. Made me want to be on the planet. And you know, we talk a lot about the negatives of what substances did to our lives because that's the, how it ends, right? That's the reality. But I think it's important to say there was a reason we started. And the reason I started was that it did help me with those things. Unfortunately, it isn't a coping mechanism that works long-term and it was very, very, very destructive. So just to give you an idea, I was when I was in, in, you know, middle school, I had bottles of alcohol in my sheets. I was drinking them. Um, I, by the time I was 14, I was addicted doing probably about an eight ball of cocaine every couple of days. And then I, and I was doing all the things, right. I was dating the older guys. I was, you know, all the things that we do. And, uh, I was the girl who, you know, I'm only friends with guys, right. I don't, I don't get along with girls. And then uh, I started dating a guy who was addicted to heroin and I didn't know actually until we were dating for a while. He was much older than me. And uh, eventually I, I got addicted to heroin and through a series of treatment centers and uh, interactions with law enforcement and um, I ended up living, you know, on out outdoors. I, I, I hate to say homeless because I, I was able to find a home, but I just didn't sleep in it. And I got sent away to these programs that were very in vogue in the early 2000s, these lockdown programs in Utah, which um, many people have probably seen the documentaries about. It was no bueno. Um, and, but it kept me alive. And I ended up being in various treatment centers for the most part for two and a half years. And I couldn't stay sober in treatment. I, I, it was so uncomfortable for me that I couldn't even, I would leave, create some big disaster and then come back and either change treatments or whatever it was. Like I just couldn't stay sober, even at the point where I really, really wanted to, I eventually left treatment and I tried for a couple of years to drink, but not do drugs. I was sure that I could prove that alcohol was different than drugs. Yes, of course I had a heroin problem, but the alcohol, I'm only 18. I can't quit drinking at 18. That's crazy talk, right? So I kept trying this, this experiment and it would, I could make it last for a couple months. And then it would be these, you know, in situations that you read about where you're like, how does that even happen to someone? You know, um, I've been kidnapped twice you know, in my life, that's, how does that happen to people? Right. That trouble finds me in these situations. I'm just really good at creating that chaos. And, um, eventually it led me back to heroin and I, I infected all the veins in my arms and I 
ended up having basically having to get sober. And that was January. That was, you know, January 6th, I was in the hospital. And for me, what really happened was I tried to make it work. I really did. I tried everything. I tried everything not to be in a 12 step program. I tried everything to do it to any other way to, to, you know, include alcohol, but not drugs. I tried, I really did. And what happens for me is that, um, and this has happened several times where I will be drinking and I will get so blackout drunk that I will choose to use drugs while I'm in a blackout, not knowing that I'm doing that. And that, um, has led to some crazy situations. So for me, when I put substances in my body that affect me from the neck up, you know, that intoxicate me that way, I am prone to make any decisions. And it really doesn't matter what that substance is. And I had to learn that the hard way when I got sober, this is something I tell people I couldn't live with it. And I couldn't live without it. All I knew was that I had been to these treatment programs and I'd been to so many meetings and I knew that they knew what to do. So I made that decision from that day. I'm just going to do what they tell me. And if it doesn't work, I can always go back or just kill myself. So that those, those were what I believed my options to be were because what I was doing, I wasn't dying. I was just living in this horrible purgatory and nothing in my life worked. And I, I really felt at 19 felt exhausted from the journey. I felt exhausted from the struggle and just giving my whole childhood to this, this thing. Like I had given up everything to try to make it work and it just wouldn't. And so, um, I, I started going to meetings and and, and listening again and doing what people told me. And I just let go of all of my old ideas, which is really hard to do. Um, it's really hard to do, especially if you've had a lot of exposure, if you know, a lot of things you've been in therapy a long time, you know, um, I went to Catholic school. So in 12 step, I was like, this is religious. I, I mean, I had an excuse, a reason, everything I could explain myself right into a blackout. And ultimately what happened the way that I have been able to get recovery and what happened in 2006 was I shut up and I let other people help me. And I just did what they said, no matter how stupid it sounded, how embarrassing, how ridiculous I just did it. I didn't, I I stopped asking all of the questions and I started doing it and um, my life changed. It really, it just, I I went to college, hadn't graduated high school, but when I was 19 and ended up, you know, going to college, going to UCLA, my dream school, I, I, you know, had relationships. I started a company like the the world opened up, but the thing that happened, right. What was it that people always ask me, what was the change? You you did this for so long. The change was, I just shut up and listened. I was just, I was done with my ideas. Oh yeah, Ashley. I know that, you know, it's been a long time and I know you've shared your story multiple times, but I don't know, becoming a mom, like my heart just like squishes because like for me it's the first time hearing your story and I actually just bumped into a little Instagram article by um I think it was sober mom squad or I'll have mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. fact check the handle and have Liz pull it up at the amount of deaths this year oh with yeah teenagers yeah. like I just read that yes. this morning my daughter's seven so you're talking about yeah. having your first drink at seven and I'm just over here like yeah oh my goodness like Oh my goodness. And it's so amazing to see you 
now, you know, all that time away is what allows you to now tell your story and to, you know, to, to change, to evolve, but that had to be so hard. And like you said, it's, it's so much harder to shut up and just do the thing than to, than we think, you know, we, someone's just like, just follow, just do what they tell you. And there's such just this unwillingness of the disease mixed with our ego and our own denial. Like it's just this like not of all these things that are not working in our favor and are not letting that very easy step happen, which is just let go, let yourself be led, do what they're telling you to do, take it one day at a time and just hang on. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to do that because we both know that not everyone can, you know, that it is a privilege for us to be here chatting about this. And like you said, and at you, I wrote a note here because it's true. Everyone talks about alcohol and it's bad. It ruined my life. But for many of us, it saved our life. So we love saying here, it works until it doesn't, which is exactly what you said, right? It was working to keep you alive. It was working to help you cope, help you feel more comfort, strangely than not drinking it. So it's just this weird shift that does happen to where it goes from helping you survive to becoming, you said, purgatory and just being so tired. When I landed in treatment, that's what got me in treatment. I wasn't physically dying, but I was sick and tired. And I was not as young as you, but I also was like, holy crap, if I have who knows how many years of this ahead of me, I don't know if I can do it. Like, no, I did not want to accept that that was how I was going to be living another decade yet, let alone like the rest of my life. So I'm really happy that you were able to shut up and do the thing. (laughs) Yeah, me too. um, You know, I don't think I've ever shut up and done exactly what I've told was told to do ever in my entire life. And I was 19. So I was a teenager. I was a drug addicted, already, you know, defiant. And I think the combination, you know, now, honestly, (laughs) I'll be like, okay, I'll do what you say. You know, it doesn't take the same. I'm warned. Life has worn me down. But then, you know, there's this, you're a teenager and it's really, it's got that extra, like, don't tell me what to do. It's really against every fiber of your being. And I think you just get kind of what you described. You just get to this place where you're like, this simply is not working. And what's the worst that could happen if I do what they ask? 100%. Plus our brain isn't even fully developed at that age. You know, you had so many things working against you. So how was early sobriety? How was that process of like (laughs) shutting up and doing a thing? Were you going to a meeting every day? Did you immediately get a sponsor? Like how were you able to double down on this decision that probably every day you were second guessing yourself and your brain was making up stories of why you could just go back. So a couple things I want to just mention is that I did not heal my trauma in 12 step. I healed my, you know, I did a lot of therapy and I had many years of therapy and that was essential for, um, and some psychiatry that was essential for me to be able to show up and do the work. Um, and in, in 12 step for me, I, I went to AA kind of all encompassing in Southern California, they had this amazing young people's group. And I, you know, I was 19 and 
it was all these fun, like all the people I would have partied with, right. It was the fun, attractive, and they were having so much fun. We had this meeting in Laguna beach called the talk show meeting. And it was literally like a, like a letterman talk show, but for alcohol is, it was so funny. And it was a meeting. And, um, I actually met my husband in that meeting and, uh, we just, the, in early recovery, I really still struggled with the, um, am I an alcoholic? I, I laugh about it now. Cause it's the most ridiculous thing, but I really, the first two years, you know, there's a line in the big book that says we admitted to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. I, that innermost self piece, I didn't get there till two years, but, um, I was doing a, uh, an inventory and on the inventory, I was, uh, uh, I was, I'm sorry, first step, my sponsor at two years had me redo my first step. And I was redoing it and writing about how I had this problem. I was drinking so much um, as a teenager that I was constantly peeing my pants places all the time. It was just like, Ashley's just peeing her pants. And, uh, and so I was so, you know, mortified and wanted to, so my solution was to wear adult diapers. And so like I would pee in the adult diapers. Right. And I, at 16, I thought this was completely normal. I mean, I knew other people weren't doing it, but I wasn't uh, alarmed that this was my solution. And I was writing this out in my first step at two years sober and it hit me, you know, to my innermost self. I had, you know, I think I had heard enough, listened to enough, been present enough that in that moment, I admitted to my innermost self, you honey are an alcoholic. That is not normal. Any way you slice it. And, you know, I, I laughed that it took me two years, but the, but all I did the first two years was I just, I went to meetings. So I went, I probably went to a meeting at least four days a week. I was in school and I did the meeting after the, like I went out with, I did things with people every, I had a plan for Friday and Saturday night with sober people every week. I never didn't have a plan with people. I could back out of a plan, but it was always there because Friday and Saturday nights were really hard. And I I just, embedded myself in that community, which wasn't hard. These people were so much fun. Many of them are still my friends today. We went to clubs. We went to raves. We went to bars. We went on trips. We went to AA conventions. We, we partied, we, with everything except the alcohol, you know, and, and the drugs. And it was an absolute blast. And that's what I needed. I, I needed to have fun. I needed, I, I had not a lot of fun for many years and I needed to have fun. And so the first, my early sobriety was about not picking up no matter what and doing what they were telling me and having a blast. And I, and I, and that's, that's what kept me sober because I was trading in this misery for this fun. It wasn't, it wasn't that hard in that, in that sense. It wasn't what I was trading it for. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, fun is one of those things that we like talking about on here a lot, but when you just get sober and you're like, okay, I got to go to a meeting. We almost forget, you know, that it has to be a part of the journey. If you are hoping to make it Mm long-term, whether you're young or older, that fun component, I think is so key. And you said it perfectly, you know, it needs to be a trade-off where you feel like you're gaining more by doing this thing that is so hard we like also saying like, it's an opportunity, not a sacrifice. And when they tell you these things, you're like, yeah, 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 you have to feel it. And you have to like create the experience that makes those words 
a reality. So I love what you're sharing. And also for listeners that are newer in sobriety, I just want to go back real quick to this innermost self concept. You know, it is totally normal to be doing the right thing for yourself now, but, but still kind of have this weird denial or Mm -hmm. this still don't even know what innermost self is. If you've hit the last layer of the onion, like I'm almost three years in and I'm still totally having a hard time with some of these really hard truths that you're saying as like, this isn't normal. And having that radical acceptance of the ugly parts in us, like that takes sometimes much more time than dropping the bottle. So be so patient with that part because that is harder. I think for many of us. Oh my goodness. And it was, it was so hard for me. I mean, truly, I think the best thing, you know, in early recovery, think about who look for people you want to emulate, who have what you want and do what they do. And, and I, you know, I was told to make amends. There were amends that I had, um, that I didn't feel sorry for what happened. I didn't feel sorry for my, like, I didn't want to make this amends. I didn't feel it. And, but I became willing, which is part, you know, it, part of the steps is you become willing, right. I did not feel any sense. In fact, I felt superiority ego it, that if I said I was sorry, I was the bigger person. And I, you know, I made this amends and I made this amends to a woman who's, who slept with my boyfriend. Right. And, and I made this amends to her and, you know, years later, I'm so, I really feel what I said, but at the time I didn't <laughs> at the time it was totally ego. It was totally, but I was acting like the woman that I wanted to be. I was acting I I was acting as if I was teaching myself to act my way into new thinking. Eventually I I do feel that way. I really do feel what I said. I mean today. So there's these amazing processes and there's, there's neurochemistry that is related, you know, that, that explains some of this, which is just act your way into new thinking. Just do, you don't have to feel everything. You don't have to under, I, I still I'm like, I, I don't know, understand what people are saying in, in, in meetings after 16 years of sitting in them. Sometimes it just, it'll come to you, but if you keep showing up and you act as if it will happen for you, you know, my, uh, my husband, I don't know if he still listens to every episode, but he, <laughs> we go to couples therapy, thank goodness for couples therapy. Mm-hmm. And there's some tools that we try to incorporate and we get in these little like arguments because it's like, it doesn't sound authentic. I'm like, it's definitely not authentic. I'm just trying to do the thing that the therapist said so that it becomes normal and like, just be okay with the feeling has to catch up later. Right. Cause yes, you're so set in our ways and Mm -hmm. it's so funny and it's so true. You know, you have to act yourself into the right thinking. It doesn't, I, at the beginning, I couldn't trust myself. If I was expecting for the thinking, the right thinking to come first, oh, that it. was never going to get forget there. It. Exactly. Nope. Forget I, it. I used to tell my sponsor, I said, I'm only going to these meetings because there are hot boys in there. You know, I'm 19, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I go to this meeting. There's this hot guy. I go to this meeting, this hot guy. And she was like, I don't care. You're in a meeting. And she's right. Right. Like 16 years later, the fact that I went to a meeting, not because I was interested in staying sober that day, I was interested in being around these good looking sober people, right? It doesn't matter why I was there. I was there. And that's, that's the thing that that's the beauty is you don't have to believe it. You don't have to, you, all you have to do is have smart feet that take you into these places with these people. Hopefully they're fun and kind to you. And 
it will happen. It will, it will show up. And, and, you know, there, there have been times over the years, really hard times where I've stayed sober because I didn't want to be a newcomer. That's not a super great reason. Right. But I, my ego was like, hell no, I am not going to drink and have to go back and, you know, and give up all this time. Right. But that wasn't like, oh, I deeply feel great about my recovery and I don't want to drink alcohol is the devil. No, it was straight ego. But today I don't feel that way anymore. And I, and I got to stay sober. So it's, I think there's this idea that we're supposed to have this beautiful, clean, spiritual mind all the time. And it's just inaccurate. Don't worry about that. Just show up whatever is getting you there. And like you said, those thought processes, they change all the time too. So like, don't take yourself so seriously. And (laughs) you did share that once you got sober, time was passing and all of these things were starting to happen. You said dream school, your life was Mm -hmm. opening up at that time, like in your twenties, were you able to think about it in a way where you were like, holy crap, like because of sobriety, I'm creating this life. Were you able to connect that literally it was linked to your recovery? How was that experience for you being like, what? Like all I needed to was to not put all this shit in my body for (laughs) life to actually happen. You know, I was, yes, I was incredibly aware of it in part because, you know, and this is again, my story. I I don't think that 12 step is the only way to get sober. This is just my experience. Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in it, they raised me. I was a, I was a kid. I didn't know how to open a bank account. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to do anything. And so I was very aware that it was linked to recovery because these people were helping me learn how to do the things, learn how to show up, learn consistency, learn to do things, you know, because it was suggested and not because you feel really strongly about it. I did not have any of those things in me. And so I was able to see that as I took suggestion, as I was allowed myself to be domesticated, so to speak, as I allowed myself to be domesticated by Alcoholics Anonymous, my life started to change and I started to change and the way that people responded to me started to change. Um, I was able to do things. I mean, you know, I went to, um, I turned 21 in recovery and we went, I went, I took a bunch of friends and we jumped out of a plane, you know, and we went sky was like, what is the craziest thing we can do without, you know, drinking and, and, you know, making it fun. It was the priority, but I was really aware of, you know, I went to college. I went to college sober as a young person. I was very aware that I was not drinking and these people were, but more importantly, once I was able to put the substances down, all of the things about learning how to be a person, learning how to interact with the world, learning how, like, don't take, don't hit people. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say nice words that, that domestication, I needed it so badly because I lived in this underworld. And when I came out, I just, I wasn't a very good, you know, uh, a member of society. And that's what they taught me how to do that. And I was, I was reliant on my sober people and sober support to be able to understand and interact with the rest of the world because of where my brain was. So I was, not only was I aware, but I was, I was, I I was very dependent, so to speak on, on that support. Yeah. You know, that's another thing that, um, sometimes has kept me sober is this support system that I'm like, Oh crap. Mm-hmm. I would now they're not just like my sober totally. people. Now they're my friends. Family. Now yeah, they're, it's family. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's enmeshed into my life so much 
that it's kind of created this like double whammy yeah. for me where totally. I'm like the accountability is like all the way oh, up like a tunnel. Yeah, sometimes and I'm you're like, just like too much, too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And like you said, like it, also for people who are trying to build this community too, it's not always just like talking about alcohol and alcoholic and uh, like, yes, the meetings have a certain structure. There is other ways to getting sober, like you mentioned, but I've been around enough sober people at different events where sometimes we're like, oh, nobody has even mentioned alcohol today. You know, it's just yeah. that, that stuff changes so much. And I think that sometimes we believe that it's going to be a certain way when we enter yes. these communities yes. and really it it's not. Uh, so I I'm always just wanting to remind people to give that a chance, um, and give an opportunity to just make new friends. That's what truly it can be about. I want to know how starting this project came in 2010. When did, when were you like, wait, I, I want to do something. I want to do the startup. I want to help people. How did that happen? So I get sober and, you know, I'm very embedded in the community and a lot of people I know start treatment centers or went into, went into the recovery business. I wanted nothing to do with it. I was like, I do not want my life to be about recovery. I don't want my life to be about this fact that I had this problem. I want, you know, I want to, I want to be Ashley, you know, who happens to be sober and is doing all these other things. Um, and I wanted to go to law school. So I was working in the court system in East LA. And then I worked at the public defender's office in, um, in Orange County. And I was gearing up after UCLA, uh, to go to law school. And at the time, um, my father, I, you know, grew up in Silicon Valley and my father is an entrepreneur and he and his business partner from a solar company that they were doing. So my aunt dies in 2010 of alcoholism and drug addiction after a lifelong battle. And my dad basically has this overwhelming understanding of a couple of things. Number one, how, you know, I think he knew that not everybody makes it, but he was so used to my success. Like that was kind of embedded, like she'll make it too. And when she died, it was this very harrowing, like, oh my God, it's not, it's not, you know, that this doesn't always happen this way and made that very real for him. And, uh, they were working on some other project and then they started working on this idea that of communicating video conferencing for therapy and getting people earlier in, you know, before they're so acute that they need to leave their home and offering these services with families and so on and so forth. And I know about the business inside and out. Cause I lived in it for two years. I always joke, like I have more clinical hours than most people, because I literally was a patient for two and a half years in all these different programs. I've been to every level of care that exists. Lucky me. And, uh, so I offered to help them. Ha ha. And so I, st- I was working at the public defender's office. I was not going to have anything to do with this other than helping them. So I started helping them and the rest is kind of history, right? I got rolled and I decided I didn't want to go to law school, which was a whole thing. And for me personally, and, um, and then I started helping them and they knew, they knew about great, you know, business. And I, I, I knew this topic inside and out. I knew the people, I knew the people who worked. And so that is how we co-founded the company. And you've been working at Lion Rock ever since. (laughs) I can't believe it. I mean, seriously, this is the thing. Don't ever say never, because it is 
now written in stone that it will happen to you. Everything I have ever said, never, I'll never do. I'll never work in the you industry. Do it. <laughs> it, it ends up happening every time, every single time. And, uh, I, I, I'm very careful about what I say now. Cause I know it's coming back to me. Uh, but yes, I've, we've been, um, we started as, you know, we joke about, you know, we were the CEO of our PowerPoint and it's grown. We've treated over, I believe 3000 clients. Um, we have over 800 clients currently in treatment right now. We treat people all over the world, outpatient through video conference. Um, we've done six, we've done outcome studies that are incredible. And it's been just a really, it's been a, to be honest with you, it's been a very difficult journey. It looks, you know, this kind of stuff looks sexy from the outside to people because you can't see the inner workings, but it's been really, uh, it's been a lot of work and a lot of people not, not believing that we could do this, uh, for a long time. It's a sustained disbelief and it's, it's been a really nice feeling to have greater acceptance in the last few years. I bet sustained disbelief and also the frustration that comes with knowing how many people need it. Like I totally commend you and everyone over there who's doing the work that you guys are doing because it is hard. Uh, we have a very little bubble of that with the podcast, but we've found also a ton of challenges on our own. It's emotionally tough, yeah. you, you know, tough in terms of getting it out there, reaching people, it's tough on so many levels and so rewarding at the same time. But I mean, I knew about you guys before we even connected on the interview, maybe I'm on the West coast too. So I feel like you guys are known it's out there and it's just really neat to see that your journey got you here. So that's super cool. And now all this time in Ashley, how do you still other than working and doing this work, how do you take care of you? What recovery things are just ingrained in your life now this far in? So, um, meetings are ingrained in my life, whether that is online or in person and, uh, some amount of physical movement connecting with other people. So it's really, I mean, it's kind of, it's not, it's not that exciting. The recipe is really honestly the same uh, for everyone, but for me, one of the things, so I, um, I, I, I go to therapy biweekly. So sometimes I'll take breaks from therapy, but I, I like to utilize, you know, if you had a plumbing problem, you'd call a professional plumber. If you, if you have an electrical problem, you call an electrician. This is the kind of stuff. Like I reach out to people when I don't know how to do something. I reach out to the professionals. We've reached out to parent coaching. You know, what do you do? You reach out for help. And that's what I've been taught to do, to reach out for help for, to the people who know how to do the thing I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. It's not, I, I don't need to, you know, reinvent the wheel on, on everything. And so it's really, really important to me, um, to be connected to other human beings, to talk to people who are in recovery, to talk to sober moms who understand what it's like to be in recovery, where you're supposed to put your recovery first above your kids, above everything, but also have the world demand that you are the last on the list. And it's really challenging. You know, I was sober 10 years when my twins were born, I was used to going to yoga, going to the meetings, all the things I was used to. I mean, I was, I was used to taking care of myself very, you know, well, efficiently. And when the twins were born, it was like that all went out the window. I am the last person on the list who gets needs met. And I have had to, you know, I call it postpartum recovery. I have had to reinvent my recovery after 
the kids because it's, how does that fit in? And so fitting it in any way, um, and, and learning to say, I need this, who can take the kids. I need time saying to my husband, I need time to go to this meeting. What day works for you, for you to take the kids as opposed to, can I do this or whatever, yes, yes. what day works for you? Let it, you know, building it into your schedule, put it on your calendar, whatever your self-care is, enter it into your calendar next to your dentist appointment, because it is not going to happen. Especially if you're, you're like us, it's not going to happen. If it's not scheduled, it's not going to just the way it used to just accidentally like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll come to the meeting. It's not going to happen like that. So that has been a huge change about self-care for me. And, and my journey right now is with food and fun and what I, I have been, you know, I've had a manageable eating, just binge eating disorder for my whole life. And I managed it for 10 years and didn't have to, you know, dive in on it. And then I had the kids and hello, uh, eating disorder, welcome back. And, uh, and so that's something I'm working really hard on and it seems to be related to pleasure and fun. So I'm seeking, what is it that connects to my soul at this stage in my life, in my mid thirties with kids, whatever, who is this person? And, um, so my recovery is always about state number one. I don't pick up no matter what, um, even, and I'll say this, this is not a popular opinion. This is just Ashley's opinion, but I, a couple of years ago had a breakdown where I thought I was going to drink. I was isolated in a situation where there was so much drink. It was, it was stupid. I picked up a cigarette and I smoked and it saved my ass. And I was like, I don't care. I, you know, I didn't smoke before I smoked. I smoked like it was my job. And, uh, you know, when I got back from that, I, I, I didn't smoke anymore, but I was, I had a moment where I said, swear to God, smoking saved my Mm -hmm. sobriety. So whatever you need to do not to pick up that drink or that drug, don't do it. You just, you know, just don't do that. So that's number one. Um, and then just go help having people who've been where I've been help me to find the happiest, most calm place that I can be personally. There was a, um, an interview with jewel that I've just obsessed with that I've been talking about. And she says, when you make the goal of your life, I'm very goal driven oriented. When you make the goal to be happy, if you really think about if the number one goal is to be happy how does my life change? It actually does look different. If the number one, right? Because the number one goal is to have a lot of money or the number one, if the number one goal is to be happy, what does it look like? And so I, I really, I'm not, it's not perfect. I'm not there yet, but I, I, that's, that's what I've been focusing on being just really happy with what I have. You know, and I appreciate you sharing the honesty of what motherhood brings because it is, a can full of triggers, in my opinion, that we oh didn't God. even know existed before. And it also allows for this like deepening into what we were talking about, the innermost self, like parts mm-hmm. of my innermost self post uh, mother or post uh, partum are these layers where I don't know if they would have come out, to be honest, uh, if totally. I hadn't had my kids. So I, I do want to share that it is challenging and you have to claim it, right? Like you said, you have to claim it and you have to treat it with respect and with as any other task. And you also, for me, my favorite flavor of shit sandwich, I say all the time is going into the victim role. And like, it would be so easy after having kids to fall into that role and thrive in it. Right. So I've Mm -hmm. had to really check myself. And like you said, you know, open communication, uh, making it a priority, making it 
playing Tetris. I feel like I'm playing Tetris yes. all the time. So my brain schedule, is yep. more flexible than it used to be. So, so many good gems. I feel like we are going to need a part two together, Ashley. Thank you. Because <laughs> I love we are, it. This is so I know, fun. We are running out of time. So I have some questions. We have okay. some final questions. If you can answer these in 30 seconds or less, just to oh, wrap Lord. up, that would be amazing. They're easy ones. Don't worry. Okay. 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 I got it. Okay. 30 seconds or less. Here we go. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? We love ice cream here. Vegan uh, cookie dough. What book are you reading right now? Whether it's in recovery or not. I am reading, uh, I'm reading a, a business B2B book and I'm reading a book called rich dad, poor dad. Good one. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey? Um, I started meditating every day, listening to spiritual speakers and audiobooks at every moment, every free moment, walking, cleaning, blah, 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 blah. And it really changed how I felt inside. And the moment I stopped doing it, it went away, but <laughs> it was definitely a light bulb moment for spirituality. That's accessible to me. So much worse. It's such a perfect time to be sober, to be open to changing, to be open to evolving. There's so much great content out there. And Ashley, before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if lying. So you might have to say adios to booze if you feel like you can't live with it and you can't live without it. Ashley, it was such a joy having you here. I'm going to make sure that Liz drops all of your guys' information in the show notes and I let's stay connected. I, I really appreciate you. I know a ton of people are going to take away a lot from this chat. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dad. This was so fun. I appreciate it. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Very well, Team RE. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to leave you with a question that was planted into my brain by Brene Brown. You probably all know that I love her if you've been listening to the podcast. And she is releasing her newest book, which I can't wait to read. I was listening to her on a podcast the other day, and she said, where do I feel safe enough to be my best calm self? I'm sharing this with you because outside of quitting drinking, I found that I'm left with a lot of things about myself that aren't my favorite and that I'm really trying to work on. One of my defects of character is that I tend to get overwhelmed a lot and that is totally okay, but I feel like I always match my overwhelm with agitation. And I'm working really hard to have a less reactive and calmer response to the events that happen to me. Because the reality is that challenges will continue to be thrown at me and I can control how I react to life just happening. So I really like this question because I also feel that in order to protect our energy, we need to take inventory of where we feel our safest and that is usually matched with where we can be our most authentic selves. I know at the core my most authentic self is good and worthy and able to react calmly. And a lot of the times I feel like I don't react calmly to things because I'm not feeling safe. So when I heard Brené Brown ask this question it really just stood out to me. So just as a little homework for you where do I feel safe enough to be my best calm self? Just something to think about. Not sure if it's going to resonate with anyone, but I felt compelled to share. Please remember that you're not alone 
and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, let's continue to be trailblazers in our journey. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself.